0: and welcome to another edition of BioCentury This Week. I'm Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief of BioCentury. Last week was another active week, both for public policy and for countermeasures against COVID-19. There's a lot of activity and talk about vaccines and China is making big strides with four of the nine vaccines in the clinic coming from Chinese companies. That includes CanSino Biologics candidate, which became the first to enter phase two testing. Roche obtained emergency use authorization for its antibody test, which has 99.8% specificity and 100% sensitivity, which are higher numbers than any other test recorded so far. And Roche expects to deliver high double-digit millions of tests per month. Outside of COVID, deal activity is still going ahead, with Alexia buying Portola for $1.4 billion, and that's the third billion dollar M&A of 2020. Those were just some of the stories we covered at Biocentury last week. All are available at biocentury.com. This week, I'm joined by two of my colleagues.
1: Steve Osden, Washington editor of Biocentury.
0: Lauren Martz, senior editor of
2: Biocentury, and I head up coverage of translation and clinical development.
0: So let me start with asking you, Lauren. You've been writing a lot about master protocols and have had your eye on what's going on in the UK. So tell us in a couple of words, what's so important about master protocols, but also what is the UK doing right? Sure. So master
2: protocols in the case of COVID are often adaptive platform trials, which means that they're evaluating multiple therapies against a standard of care in the same trial, with the same endpoints under the same protocols, and that means that you're getting a consistent read of how these therapies are doing within a single trial. It shares resources, it allows more patients to receive the therapeutic and fewer to be in the standard of care arm, and it comes to answers more quickly on which therapies are effective relative to the standard of care. And something that the UK has done really well is make these trials a priority. So they have established three national priority master protocol trials, and they've made sure that these address three different patient populations within the COVID group. The recovery trial is looking at the biggest group of patients, which are the hospitalized patients who are moderately ill. And then they also have the principal trial, which is for patients who haven't yet gone to the hospital who are ambulatory. And they're also endorsing the REMAP-CAP trial, which is mostly for the more severe patients. And by making these a priority and by funding these trials, they are directing patients here rather than to some of the smaller trials that aren't necessarily as powered to give good
1: answers. I wanted to ask you a question about it because one of the things about master protocols is that it takes some of the power out of the hands of the companies that own the assets that are being tested and it requires trust and cooperation. How have they secured that in the UK? And do you think that's something that's feasible in the United States where there's less government control and there's, there's less of a unified healthcare system?
2: So in terms of the unified healthcare system, I think that is a challenge that may make it harder to get patients into these trials. From the company's perspective. I don't know that that has such an impact. I think that in this pandemic situation, there's a lot of incentive for companies to get the fastest answer possible. The business has adjusted to this. One of the arguments against using this model outside of COVID-19 is that this takes it out of the hands of companies who normally will be able to design their trial specifically for their drug to give it the best chances possible of doing well in the trial. And it also lines your drug up side by side to someone else. So you're going to find out early whether your drug works and how it does relative to everything else, which might not be that attractive to some companies. But in the argument then is that it also could be a positive if you get an early indication that your drug might be better than standard of care, but maybe not the best drug out there.
0: Steve, let me ask you something though, because Biocentury has been writing for years about master protocols. And I know that FDA has also tried to encourage people to use them. Do you think that this could create a momentum shift or do you think we're just in a like Lauren said, that urgency is motivating companies. Do you think we're going to revert back to type afterwards?
1: You know, I would like to think that this is going to change everything forever. And when you're in the middle of something like this, that's what it seems like based on past experience. I don't think that that's the case. And in fact, I've spoken with the CEO of an oncology company during the crisis, and I put that question to him. And he was not sympathetic to the idea that large-scale master protocols are going to become the norm for oncology drugs, for example, after this is all over. So while I would like to think that that would be what would happen, I don't actually think it is what's going to happen. I think it will become the norm for public health emergencies. It'll become the norm in spaces where there is a scarcity of patients and patient groups And governments can band together and basically force companies to do it and say, you know what, company, you can do whatever it is that you want, but patients aren't going to enroll in your trials unless it's part of a master protocol that we all think makes sense. That could happen, but otherwise, I don't think it's going to happen.
0: Well, Lauren, first of all, I'm going to ask you if you agree with that. And secondly, you wrote a story last week about the REMAP-CAT trial. And that's particularly interesting because it's looking at drug cocktails So there's obvious implications there for different indications or diseases outside of COVID. Maybe you can just walk us through what REMAP-CAP is doing and how you think that might play out.
2: So I do agree with what Steve said. And I think that REMAP-CAP is a great example of how these trials should be set up for these public health emergency situations. REMAP-CAP was started, I think it was about four years ago, as a pandemic preparedness measure. They started running in in patients with community-acquired pneumonia, and they had this sleeping strata is what they called it, a protocol that's just waiting for a pandemic to start. And uh, remap cap is pretty interesting. I think it it might be the only trial that's looking at drug combinations. So as I said, most of the other ones are looking at at single. They're giving single therapies to patients and comparing them with standard of care. And here, a single patient will get drugs from our therapies from up to seven different therapeutic classes, which they're calling domains. And so it's designed to answer much broader questions, not just whether a therapy is working and, and which is working better, but which types of therapies could be combined well and which individual therapy and therapeutic combinations are working best.
1: I, I think that one of the places where you could see master protocols happening after this crisis is over is in infectious diseases. And for example, in microbial resistance. You could easily see hospitals all all over the world saying, you know, every single patient who is enrolled and treated for an infectious disease is automatically enrolled in a master protocol, and the data is fed into some kind of centralized system so that everybody can compare the results. That would certainly be a very reasonable thing to do, and and it would be a way to move the field forward.
0: I think another area that is, is taking off in COVID that we'll be watching for what happens afterwards is with real-world data. And obviously, real-world data is central to designing these trials, and it's also coming out of trials.
1: I spoke with Amy Abernathy, the the principal deputy commissioner of the FDA, who came to FDA from Flatiron. And I also spoke with Mark McClellan, the director of the Duke-Margolis Center, who is the former FDA commissioner and the former administrator of CMS, and also the person who created and conceived of the Sentinel System, which was really the first large application of real-world data for studying drug safety and now drug efficacy also. The the thing that was really interesting from both of them, they both said that there's been more progress in the last few weeks in making real-world data and real-world evidence applicable to regulatory decisions and to medical decisions than there had been in in a very long time before that, that this crisis has really spurred people to collaborate in ways that they hadn't before, and it's caused them to scramble to actually do some of the things that usually take weeks and months of endless conference calls and meetings to agree on protocols. They've just set all that aside and swung into action.
0: Well, we've certainly seen that in particular with the COVID R&D consortium, which I think is a particularly interesting one because it is exclusively industry members. It's not been pulled together by NIH or you know some outside public entity and they are sharing data in a pre-competitive consortium. I, I think there's certain people that would like to see that go on afterwards but you know I do think we're in a, a special moment where there's a huge incentive to tackle this particular disease and and how much that data sharing goes on afterwards is going to be interesting to
1: see. That I, I actually do think that this is something that will continue after a lot of the innovations that are being made for real-world data and real-world evidence now will continue. Amy Abernathy and Mark McClellan both discussed the evidence accelerator that the Reagan-Udall Foundation and Friends of Cancer Research have created. They talked about some of the methods that are being used. For example, rather than creating large pools of data what they're doing is they're going out to different data holders and and figuring out how to ask them the same question, how they can interrogate their own data with the same question and then provide the answers back. And that those answers then can be compared against each other. So you might have eight different groups around the country asking the same or similar question, and then you can compare the results. And obviously if there's agreement among all of them, it gives more confidence in the results. And if there's disagreement, then it poses questions about why. And that sets you off on a whole nother path. The thing that that I found really interesting from what Dr. Abernathy said was that the real, the biggest value in all of this may not be real in so much in the specific questions that are answered about interventions, but about an understanding the course of the disease. And more broadly, She said, well, look, for the last 20 years, she's been writing and thinking about how to create a system where the experiences of every single person who touches the healthcare system are used to improve the experiences of everyone who comes after them. You know, some people have called that a learning healthcare system. And she said that the the things that are happening now as a result of COVID-19 are moving that forward in ways that she finds very optimistic. And, and, and I have to say also, though, that both she and Dr. McClellan discussed challenges and said that there are, there are really urgent problems that are coming up in the very near term that are going to require collaboration on real-world data and real-world evidence. And it isn't apparent right this minute how that's going to happen.
0: Steve, let me finish by a couple of questions. There's been a lot of talk about the leadership of government agencies in this whole crisis And last week, we learned more about the ouster of Rick Bright. So what went on there, and what should we expect to see now?
1: Well, what we should expect to see now, I can start with that. Rick Bright's going to be testifying on Thursday to Congress, at least he's scheduled to do so, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of attention to, to what he has to say. You know, look, Bright's allegations are really disturbing. He claims that cronyism diverted government contracts for biodefense countermeasures, companies that didn't deserve them, and that a desire to please President Trump prevented HHS from taking steps to respond to the pandemic threat in January, February, and March, and that we'd be in much better shape if the things that he and others had recommended had been done at that time. About FDA, he says that the White House pressed hard for BARDA to apply for expanded access to chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which would have put very few limits on their use for COVID-19. And the way he tells it, Janet Woodcock called him and asked Barta to ask for an emergency use authorization instead of expanded access, and that that EUA, expanded use authorization, would limit the use to hospitals and to under a physician Wait, supervision. Are
0: you, are you really saying that it was the lesser of two evils, that there was pressure, and this was basically a more palatable option, and that's why they went in that direction?
1: That's what Bright says, and he says that he and Woodcock work behind the scenes to reduce the risks and that what happened was less bad than if there had been a a full-blown expanded access. That's really kind of a sad standard for FDA to make a decision if it's really true. And to me, I think what's going to be really telling is what FDA does now. Well, have they
0: responded to that, Steve?
1: You know, they haven't responded directly to it. They sent me a statement and said that they had considered the expanded access and they explained why they didn't do it, and they explained why emergency use was better because it's under a physician's supervision, but they didn't respond to the allegations from Bright that the whole thing is a result of political pressure. And, and I think that the really important question you have to ask there is, would this have even come up? Would FDA have considered giving emergency use authorization if the president hadn't been promoting the use of these two drugs? And I think the answer is no. So the the really important question going forward is going to be, if the really important question going forward is going to be, if the data doesn't show that these drugs are safe and effective for COVID-19, will FDA rescind the emergency use authorization?
0: Stephen Hahn telling you that on the record a couple of weeks ago in your podcast interview with him, that would be the case.
1: He did tell me that. So now the test is going to be, does FDA really do it? And how do they explain it? If they do rescind the EUA, how are they going to explain that to the American public? And how are they going to explain it to President Trump? That's going to be a real test of the agency's independence. There's some people, including Jesse Goodman, the former head of the FDA Center for Biologics and the former chief scientist at FDA, who, who told me that they think that the evidence that's out there right now is sufficient to rescind the EUA. More data is going to be coming out in the coming weeks, and, and it's going to be a real challenge for FDA if that data doesn't support the UA, if they really follow through with it and, and rescind, and, and how they explain that. Well,
0: Steve, I am sure we could discuss this all day, but we won't. Instead, we will watch for Thursday, I think you said is when the uh, next shoe drops on this one. And in the meantime, I will invite all of our listeners to visit Biocentury.com,